Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Dominic as he teaches us from our Behold Emmanuel series. So back in the day, back in Roman times, after the Roman army would go out and have a battle, they didn't have a way of communicating back home how things went. So the, the, the army, when they would win, would send a herald, someone who would go sprinting. And they would run in to Rome and they'd go to the city leaders and they would announce their victory. Then the city changed. All of a sudden, the priests would run out and they would get censers full of incense and they would start marching down the streets so that the whole city would be filled with this perfume. And when people woke up that morning and they don't know how things went, they would smell this perfume and it smelled like victory. And businesses would close and people would come out from their homes and from their businesses and they would fill the sides of the streets because today, today, the army was coming back. And this wasn't just like another victory like watching a football team win. This wasn't nearly so trite. This was our nation stands undefeated and there isn't some enemy out there who marched through our lines who's coming today to enslave us. This is a declaration that who's coming home is our brothers and our fathers and our sons who had victory. So we may see them today in the road. And the army would come marching down in victory and people would lose their minds in excitement. And then behind the army would come the general. And his chariot would be led by white horses. Or, or one time it was led by an elephant and one time by four tigers. And he would come marching in all his splendor and led behind his chariot was the defeated. If there's a point that Matthew is trying to make in his first chapter, he's trying to say... The king has come. He's come. And all those who are part of his kingdom have a victory. And the enemy is defeated. That's the point of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, he's trying to drive home that first point. The king has finally come. Now, fast forward to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 22. And Jesus is having a debate. With the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees have been barraging him with questions up until this point. And they're trying to trip him up because they want to disqualify him in front of the crowds. They want to discredit him. And then Jesus turns and asks them a question. And it's the question that Matthew answers at the beginning. Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And Matthew doesn't wait 22 chapters to answer that. Chapter 1, verse 1, if you don't already have your Bibles open, open to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's first words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the man with the human ancestry that stretches right back to King David, right back to the father of the faith, Abraham. And then Matthew traces the course of history through this lineage, culminating finally with one name. And every Hebrew reader, when they hear the word Christ at the beginning, and when they hear the Christ at the end of the genealogy, their ears perk up, their hearts speed up, and then Matthew makes a proposition. The Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. 
And every Jewish reader at this point has to make a decision. This has challenged what they think and what they believe. The Christ has come. And if what Matthew says is true, they are moving into a new era of Israel. History, human history is moving into a new era. An era where the Christ has come. So just like Lord of the Rings has way too many endings this morning, we're going to have probably way too many introductions. But I'd like to, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper to challenge our minds a little bit and begin to unpack who the Christ is and how the Christ can save. So one, the Christ has come. But for non-Jews like you and I, we may have some Jews in here, but I'm not. It's hard to wrap our minds around how glorious a procession this would be that the Christ has come. So I want to take a minute and, and discuss who is the Christ? Who did the average Jew, the average Israelite, believe the Christ was? Who did the Pharisees believe the Christ was? Who did Mary and Joseph believe the Christ was? So if you'll take a brief journey with me, it stretches all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. Their status before the Creator has changed. They have found themselves desperately wanting, and fig leaves are not covering up the guilt and the shame and the self-loathing that they feel now. And God challenges the head of the human race, Adam, what have you done? And God works his way from Adam to Eve. Actually, he begins with the serpent. Sorry. And as he is speaking to the serpent, we get this foggy, shadowy prediction. This is Genesis 3.15, if you want to take a look at it. It says, God is saying to the serpent, to the tempter, to Satan, he's saying, I'm going to set up vile hatred, war between you and her, speaking of Eve. And I'm going to set this same hatred between your offspring, all your followers, Satan, and her offspring, her descendants, all who are going to come after her, us. Then it goes from this generic offspring and says, and he, specific him. It's so beautiful. And it says that there is, he sells the tempter, or he, sorry, I'm getting my verses mixed up. It says he is going to bruise your head and you are going to bruise his heel. You're going to inflict a flesh wound. That's a tongue twister. But he is going to inflict a mortal wound. You're going to be defeated. This, this future tense him is going to right the wrong of Adam and Eve's sin. And there's so many verses that we could talk about. The Old Testament is laced with these, but just a few others that I want to point out. In Genesis 49, 8, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, and he's speaking prophetically over them. And he talks about Judah, that a day is going to come that a royal kingly line will come from Judah, but this royal line will culminate with this one called Shiloh. 
that it's going to, to last until Shiloh comes, until the one for who everything belongs comes. And so this coming one who is a hero that's going to defeat the ancient serpent is going to be a king. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, Moses is speaking. This is Deuteronomy. This is his last words, essentially, very long last words. And he says, look for a prophet like me, one who's going to intercede between you and God, one that's going to speak God's words. So he's going to be this ancient, he's going to be this hero defeating the ancient serpent. He's going to be this king. He's going to be this prophet. And then Psalm 2, God says, I'm going to call him my son, and I'm going to give the nations to him to rule. He will be a world ruler and esteem God his own father. Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, this coming one is going to be a descendant of David, and God's very spirit is going to rest on him to righteously judge because he will be able to judge the heart. So he's a prophet, he's a judge, he's a king, he's a hero. He esteems God as his father. And all the verses that the Jews highlighted, highlighted a man, a very special man, an anointed man, a man gifted by God. But it's going to be Daniel that God speaks to where you get this description of him with a title. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, David is is having this vision of the heavenly realms. And he's seeing these creatures with eyes and there's horns that are talking. It's really, really otherworldly, really bizarre. And we're going to jump into this vision that Daniel's having. You ready? Let's set the stage. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Who does Daniel see sitting on the throne? The Ancient of Days. This is sovereign God himself. You jump forward a couple of verses, and, the, and this vision continues. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel, he is overwhelmed with with freakish, otherworldly sights. There's flaming wheels and, and thrones and talking horns and weird creatures. But then suddenly in the middle of this, he sees a figure that's comfortingly familiar. This figure has two hands, just like Daniel. He has two feet. He has facial features that Daniel recognizes. It's almost as if, almost as if he was born flesh and blood just like Daniel was. Against this backdrop of the bizarre. And when this figure is presented before God, God takes his glory 
and gives it to him. He takes his sovereign right as creator and gives it to him. Who is this person? Now, son of man is not an uncommon term in the Old Testament. It's throughout. It's always talking to just normal people like you and I. And it's emphasizing their humanity. In fact, God calls Ezekiel son of man throughout the whole book. It's always like God's going, <laughs> little human, let me talk to you about this. But I looked to see if I could find it. Right here in Daniel is the last time we will read this phrase, son of man, until we get to Jesus. Because at this point, this phrase is now set aside exclusively for this coming one. And with this in mind, this vision in mind, begin to wrap your mind around what Jesus is saying when he refers to himself as the Son of Man 30 times in the book of Matthew. Jesus is making a declaration that's divisive that's going to throw their minds back to this heavenly figure. Then, two chapters later, Daniel has another vision that includes this son of man. And in this vision, God lays out his timeline for when he would redeem the world. And the timeline is marked by the coming of the anointed one. The Son of Man is given the title Anointed One. Hebrew, Messiah, translated into Greek, Christ. So every time you're reading your New Testament and you find the word Christ, your mind needs to leap back to Daniel's vision of who this is. And Matthew opens his book with, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, Christ. This is not a small statement. This is one that sets his readers' minds reeling. And it's one that should capture our imagination. The Christ has come. This announcement is the very announcement that the angels make to the shepherds. What do they say? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. That is not a small statement. Think about Jesus. Matthew spends more time than the other gospel writers talking about Jesus' baptism. Why? Because the Holy Spirit descending on him was the anointing of the anointed one, the Christ, for his public ministry. This is huge. Consider Peter's confession. You are the Christ the son of the living God. What is Peter saying? He's saying this figure that we've been waiting for, this, this figure that is the son of man has come marching down the streets and it's you. All dominion, all authority, all glory is to be put at your feet by the ancient of days. This is huge. The one who is going to crush the accuser and defeat God's enemies and set them up as an eternal kingdom and establish perfect peace. He has a name now. He is Christ Jesus. But, and we finally sort of arrive at our text this morning, that is only half 
of Matthew's genealogy. This human lineage back to David and Abraham is only half of the point that he intends to make in his first chapter. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Pause. So we have the word now. This is a continuing word. So we're, we're building on what Matthew just said. The word for birth there, the Greek word is Genesis. And it's the exact same word that is back in verse 1 used for genealogy. So in verse 1, it says the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And right here in 18, he says, now the Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew is giving a second genealogy. He's going back to start from the beginning. Like I mentioned earlier, all that list of names was the first half, and now he's got the second half. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from who? You see, he spent 17 verses saying Jacob was the father of Joseph, was the husband of Mary, from whom was born Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, here, from the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. So it takes him 17 verses to lay out his human heritage, and it takes him a part of one verse, and he's laying out his divine lineage. He is from God. The man Jesus may have been born to Mary, but he's not of Mary. He's existed before Mary, before David, before Abraham, before the foundations of the earth. He is the son of man, and he's the son of God at the same time. The same Holy Spirit that produced the world from nothing is now doing another miracle inside Mary's womb to unify the divine and humanity, the eternal with what is temporal. He's going to be both the fruit of Mary's womb and he's going to be the begotten son of God. Galatians 4.4, God sent forth his son born of woman. And the fancy word for this is we call it the incarnation which simply means to be made flesh. And the incarnation is not a secondary doctrine. It's the foundation of what took place on the cross. Without the incarnation, there is no Christianity. There is no gospel and there is no hope. We have to wrap our minds around what Matthew is trying to say. Jesus is son of man and he's son of God simultaneously in some miraculous way we can't wrap our minds around. Like how I open and close that. We have to wrap our minds around something we can't wrap our minds around. So articulate. The true meaning of Christmas is not that a poor girl gave birth to a baby who became a king. The true meaning of Christmas is that God loved us so much that he stepped out of heaven and put on our nature so he could save us. How? How did the divine unite with humanity? And it's a mystery. And it's not a mystery that we're going to explain, but I think that it's worth slowing down here to be a mystery that we define. Because it's so important. Because if Jesus wasn't holy God and holy man, the cross is worthless. The Apostle John 
walked and talked with Jesus. And he saw this mystery, but it's not a mystery that he apologized for. It's one that he took delight in. He saw Jesus eat. He saw Jesus sleep. He saw Jesus bleed and cry and die. But he also, he saw Jesus make bread and fish from nothing, creatively. He saw Jesus control the weather with a word. He saw Jesus send lame men running with joy, and he saw Jesus send demons running with fear. And when John sits down to write about who Jesus is, listen to it. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John goes, And then jump forward in verse 14. The Word became flesh. He is holy God and He is holy man. And He dwelt among us and we have seen His, what? Glory. The glory that the Ancient of Days has placed on Him. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Paul describes it like this in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Holy God, holy man. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He became man without ceasing to be God. Maybe the best way of defining this is to go back to people smarter than us who are wrestling with this. And they're dealing back in 451 A.D., They're dealing with all of these heresies, trying to figure out how this worked. How could Jesus be God and man? And some people propose the idea that God just came and projected himself to be a man, like some sort of divine ghost. And other people say, well, maybe God came and possessed a man. And someone else argued that God's nature and human nature mixed to become a third kind of nature. And maybe, and no, not maybe. These are all real heresies from real people. And another one argues that Jesus is some sort of Hercules, that he's half God and half man. And so they, four or 500 bishops and pastors and theologians got together to iron out, how do we describe biblically our faith of who Jesus is? And I'd like to read an excerpt from this. This is from the Chalcedonian Creed. This is so beautiful. Uh, go look it up and read the whole thing. It's not long. Savor it. It's so cool. Our Lord Jesus is at once truly God and truly man, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. So everything that is true about one isn't taken away when it's unified with the other but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person. So notice what they do is they explain what's going on, but they, they, don't, try to, they don't try to figure it out. They just define it. This is what we see in Jesus. This is what Scripture reveals. So just as, a, as, as a, probably a, a horrible illustration, but I wanted to kind of have a visual. So I've got, uh, I got my green square, right? And my green square has attributes. It's uh, two-dimensional, essentially. It has four points. It's green. And it's in the shape of a square or diamond. Diamond square. Okay. And then I have 
my red ball. And, and any comparison to Christmas is totally un, not intentional. And my red ball also has attributes. It's spherical. It's red. It bounces. Not. <laughs> they both have drastically different attributes. And somehow, in some miraculous way, the divine, without losing his attributes, took on humanity without compromising the attributes. He was in every way like us, but without sin. Everything that was true of Adam is true of Jesus. Everything that is true of God is true of Jesus. God is eternal and all-knowing and unchanging, all-powerful and perfectly holy. Humans are limited in knowledge. We have a life expectancy. We're vulnerable to harm. We get tired. We experience temptation. So God, with all the attributes that were true of him, without compromising his nature, took on all the attributes that were true about mankind. And somehow, this is a paradox, but it's not a contradiction. And while this is mind-meltingly hard to comprehend, it's critical for our salvation. Because if Jesus was anything other than this, salvation doesn't work. And if you're still with me, bear with me just a few more minutes. I find this fascinating. Maybe I can tell you along with me. Jesus had to be truly human in us, like us, in every way. If not, he would not qualify as our substitute. It was man who was disobedient before God. It was man that God calls accountable to pay the punishment. Man is responsible. A sheep couldn't die in our place. A bull couldn't die in our place. An angel couldn't die in our place. Man was held accountable. And so it's going to take a perfect man to be our substitute. Jesus had to be truly human to die our death. Redemption for sin requires death, but God who is eternal cannot die. Only man could represent us and die for the punishment of sin. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children, talking about Eve's descendants, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the ancient tempter. There's a longer list, but I'll give you one last one. He had to be truly man to be seen and to be known. The disciples could see him and hear him and, and touch the holes in his hands. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. He, Jesus, has made him, God, known. He had to be truly man. And he had to be truly God. God required a perfectly obedient and holy sacrifice. No one lives up to God's standard except who? God himself. It's like one person who's on death row talking to the guard and saying, that guy on death row, I want to take his place so you can set him free. Well, that doesn't make sense. There are two people who are guilty, two people who are going to die. It would take someone who is absolutely innocent before God's justice who can take the place of someone's punishment. So God had to be made flesh for us. He had to be truly God because only God could withstand the full wrath of God against sin on the cross. We couldn't. No human, no other created being could withstand God's wrath for sin. An eternity of hell poured out in three hours. 
And he had to be truly God because only God is the Lord of life who could defeat death and raise himself from the dead. Thomas Aquinas from back in the day and back in that day, he gave an illustration. It falls short, I'm sure, but it helps me a little bit. And he gives the illustration of a carpenter with a saw. That a hand can't cut wood, but a saw doesn't function without a master. So the master takes up the saw to do his work. God took up humanity to do the work for our redemption. If he was anything but perfect union between God and man, the cross would have been worthless. And we would still be in our sins. Matthew Henry says that the mystery of Christ's incarnation is to be adored but not pried into. Any human words or explanation would only cheapen it and take our understanding further from the truth. This miracle of that baby laying in that food trough, announced by angels, worshipped by shepherds, and sought for by stargazers, is the Son of Man, and he's the Son of God. Third introduction over with. Let's get to our text. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew introduces his genealogy of so-and-so, father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so. But whenever he zooms in on this story, he doesn't begin with a marriage. He begins with a betrothal before they were married. And betrothal in the Jewish culture was very different than being engaged in ours. For us, being engaged is sort of like the, just the last leg of the dating process, and it's the process where you're stressed for however many months until the wedding finally comes, and you're broke, and you just, you know, that's how, that's engagement. But for them, it was very different. Their parents would have arranged this. There would have been a contract that was seen by witnesses. There would have been a bride price, a dowry paid to seal the deal. And then for up to a year, there wouldn't be a wedding. But despite there not being a wedding yet, they would be called, husband and wife, to, to break this contract would take divorce or death. And if one of them was unfaithful, it was considered an adultery against a marriage. But there is no wedding and there's no consummation yet. And this is where we begin our story. And it's during this time the couple would have very little social contact with each other. And it would be considered both shameful, sinful, and harmful to jump the gun. And then notice Matthew includes this little phrase, before they came together. So if we weren't already assuming abstinence, he's also confirming it. Nothing has happened between them. They're honoring their purity standards. And then he echoes this again in verse 25. This is why Mary is so confused when the angel shows up and says, Mary, you're going to be pregnant. And she's like, that doesn't make sense. I'm a virgin. She knew she'd never been with a man. But scripture unapologetically gives no leeway, 
no leeway to progressive Christians that argue against the virgin birth. Again and again and again and again, it confirms. Like you either take it at face value or you say like, okay, this isn't the faith for me. Like God is either the one who created the world and does what he says that he's going to do, or he's not. You, you begin at Genesis 1-1. You either take it as truth or you depart from the Christian faith. There's no leeway to argue with the virgin birth. And yet, despite her abstinence, Mary finds herself pregnant. But isn't that just like God? The Old Testament is full of wombs that should never have given birth, that God does a miracle. Sarah is 90. She's past menopause. Hannah is barren. Again and again, Elizabeth was barren. That's Mary's cousin. And Mary is a virgin. And yet God does a miracle. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Matthew's birth story is going to focus on Joseph. He needs us to see that Christ came into the family in the lineage of David. And when Joseph marries Mary, and when he names Jesus, it's an official adoption. So we're going to follow Joseph here. Joseph's probably in his late teens. He's a carpenter. He's a blue-collar man. And Matthew sums up Joseph's character in one word. Oh, that the Lord would say this about us. Joseph was a just man. And we can't overlook that. Joseph was a just man. Do you know how many people in the Old Testament are called just? Noah. Job. It alludes to Daniel. Not many. And yet God is spoken of as just throughout the Old Testament. And Matthew grabs this word at the beginning of his gospel to say, no, Joseph was a just man. This meant that Joseph wanted to please God. He was upright. He was virtuous. He was godly. He honored the Old Testament law, but he didn't do it out of some sort of just trying to follow the rules. He did it because he feared God. We need to wrap our minds around this when we consider his dilemma. He has to follow the law because his very character is to honor God. He wanted to do what was right. He's not just legalistic. So Matthew's definition of Joseph's character, and it wasn't even baseless. Think about the number of times that Joseph is obedient to God. He marries Mary. He named the child what God told him to. He drops everything to escape to Egypt. He returns home at God's direction. He followed the Jewish law, taking his family every year to Jerusalem. And he even obeys Caesar Augustus in registering his family in Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy. Again and again and again, we see that Joseph's character is to honor God. Is there some place in your life you've been waiting to honor God? Is there some place that you know you've been called to obedience, but you've been sort of putting it off? I'll just leave you with that. So now, Mary is probably about four months pregnant. She spent three months with Elizabeth. She's already had the, uh, so Joey, we need to talk conversation. And at best, it's left him uncertain about what's true. Whatever his conclusions are, 
he doesn't seem to be totally convinced about this miraculous birth thing. Oh, an angel showed up. Mm -hmm. And he has at least three reasons to be really frustrated. One, it seems like his fiance has been unfaithful. Two, his own reputation is going to suffer when people assume that he was the one. And three, part of their culture, one of the greatest honors for a father was to sire the first eldest son in the family. And that's been taken away. And yet, despite these frustrations, we don't see any of that come out of him. We only see compassion. We only see him desiring to honor God. His main concerns for Mary, because he's righteous, he has these strong convictions to uphold the law. Deuteronomy 22 says Mary is to be stoned. Like, like this weighs on him because he loves God. He fears God. So he has to uphold the law. But because he's a righteous man, because he has God's character, he, he's compassionate. He cares about this girl. He loves her. He, he wants to protect her. And so he does, he does the best thing that human wisdom can come up with. As he considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He comes up with the conclusion that he's going to divorce her, but he's going to do it as undercover as possible to try to protect her for at least a little while. But he does have to do something. His, his character, his righteousness is the very reason he has a dilemma. If he wasn't righteous, he'd be like, well, do the law. If he wasn't righteous, he'd say, forget about it. Let's get married. His character is what creates this dilemma. So the angel shows up. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I love how the angel opens. Joseph, son of David. Why? Yeah. Matthew wants us to think back to David. He wants us, he's still anchoring in this human genealogy and he's bringing something to attention in Joseph. Joseph does not walk around, oh, hi, I'm Joseph, son of David, nice to meet you. Like that's not, that's not it at all. What's happening here is the angel is saying, Joseph, wake up, you're a part of something big now. What God has been doing since the beginning of time is culminating in your life. All the prophecies about your forefather David are coming to a head here and now. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Something big is taking place. Something big that God is in control of, that he is doing. Joseph, son of David. Are you ready? Are you ready to be obedient? Who really arranged this marriage between Joseph and Mary? It wasn't their parents. God has been the one at work in this the whole time. What about us? What are we stressing about so much? What are we trying and striving to apply human wisdom to? How about you? I, don't, I know me. Struggling to come up with my best solution. And yet we, we so quickly forget that our life is not, is not the beginning of the timeline. Our God has been at work before us. Pastor Ben brought it out in the sermon last week beautifully. 
That God's purposes and plans, they don't end in our lives. They go beyond us. Sometimes our lives are just the link to what he's doing in the next generation. Oh, Lord, let us be a link that teaches about you. Let us be a link that's faithful to who you are, that fears you. If nothing else, let us raise our children to fear you. What is it that God is calling you and saying, stop being afraid? Rest. I've got this. This is outside your hands, but I've got this. I've always had this. You're the one who tries to get your hands into my business. God's wisdom is higher than ours. And then the angel says, take Mary as your wife. The first genealogy is substantiated that Joseph is a descendant of David, but Jesus isn't Joseph's son. He has to adopt Jesus. And by accepting pregnant Mary and naming her child, Jesus is becoming the legal son of Joseph and an heir to David's throne. Because Jesus is of the Holy Spirit and he's of David. Now I want to slow down right here. This is just so beautiful. Get all excited. I believe there's a beautiful picture here of what Jesus did at the cross in Joseph's obedience to Mary, Mary. Joseph's character, his justice, should have pushed Mary away because he was an upright man. He should have separated from her, broken the contract. Because our God is holy, he should have broken contract with us. His covenant fell, could have fallen by the wayside a long, long time ago. And yet, what does the angel ask Joseph to do? The very character of justice, righteousness, and godliness in Joseph that should have pushed Mary away, the angel says, Joseph, I want you to take Mary and I want you to cover her with it. I want you to give her your name. I want you to stand between her and every accusation. I want you to cover her, to shield her with your character. Marrying Mary validated her. It protected her from the, the law of death. It provided for her, cared for her. But unlike Mary, who was innocent of promiscuity, well, you're guilty. Every accusation brought against us, we have no response, but yeah, I'm guilty. But for those who are in Christ, because Jesus isn't just a man, because he is God, with God's character, out of great love, Jesus doesn't see the guilty and say, get away. He sees the guilty and says, I love you, I'm going to cover you at the cross. This is what's so beautiful about the cross. So many things are happening, but, but, but he's imputed. He, he's giving his righteousness to us. The righteousness we don't deserve is what's being placed on us, and the sin that he doesn't deserve of us is being placed onto him. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin 
who knew no sin. Whose sin did Jesus become? Ours. So that in him, covered by him, in him, we might become the righteousness, the justice of God. This is how God can be, as Romans 3.26 says, both just and the justifier. He can, he can hold on to his character. He can show off his character by covering us with his character and justifying us. We can draw near to his throne of grace because of what Jesus did at the cross. There's a beautiful story in John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery. And Deuteronomy 22 is what's playing out. She's been caught, she's drugged to Jesus, and they're holding stones. They're upholding the law. And they bring this woman to the feet of the ultimate judge. You see where I'm going with this, right? And the ultimate judge brings justice to the ones with stones in their hands and protects the woman with his own character. It's so beautiful. It says, go and sin no more. Our God loves us so much that all who would cry out to him would be saved. All who come to him knowing our sin and our shame and our hopelessness would be covered with the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at me and God looks at you, he no longer <laughs> sees the wretch and the worm and the sinfulness that we are. He sees the beauty and the righteousness and the character of his son, of himself. When God looks at you, my brother and my sister in Christ, he's pleased. Let that soak in for a minute. We look in the mirror, we are not pleased. We know who we are. We know what we think. But for those who are in Christ, when we stand before God, when we kneel before God, he sees us and he sees the work of his son, the blood of his son, the character of his son, and he says, I'm pleased. How good is that? What rest we can have. Go and sin no more. What a way to honor the God who took our sin.